Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. That's the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 775. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and you'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of a burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. As we begin today's message, let's start with a prayer. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We had a good Christmas service here. Um, just a few days ago, it was everything was good. Every, I, I, if I went on, I, I would have. I it would take too long to say all the good things about it. There was one thing that was sad, though. So I'll share that one thing. That was after the kids went up and did their presentation, they ran off the stage excited, saying, "I can't wait to color," and that made me a little sad. I was like, "These kids, we get to worship with them like, what, three times at most a year, and they're excited to color." Uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I would have to sit next to my parents if I were to join them on a Sunday service. I had to sit next to my parents, and I wouldn't move. If I moved, then I would get disciplined. Uh, and so we just sit there, and that's how we learned. Um, but it's a different generation. That's what I thought. It's a different generation. Um, and so those are things that I'm thinking about. Those are things that I reflect on. Uh, you know, what kind of church are we? You know, what are we focused on? What are we really after? Is it entertainment? Is it just so that we don't get bored? You know, if you don't capture my imagination, I will turn off. Is that, is that the kind of attitude that we have? I was talking with a fellow brother and sister, talking about how movies today are different. And I wanted to share with my wife some good movies in the past, so like some oldies. And by oldies, I mean like 
80s. I'm not even talking about like Sound of Music, but um, if you if you like movies today, you can't watch movies maybe 20, 30 years ago. They're just made differently. They're just longer scenes, and you play out like character development, and then you see people's lives like, oh, this is the kind of person they are. But now everything is just 30-second cuts. It's, uh, and I was saying, it's like your Instagram feed, that's just for two hours. So that's what a movie is now. It's just 30-second cuts uh, for two hours long. And so, you know, it's a different generation. But I think the question still doesn't change, you know? Are you, what's the purpose? Do you want to just be entertained? And if it's not a 30-second cut, um, is your attitude going to change? And those are some, some questions that I face too, uh, especially when we look at our young kids and how do we want our kids to grow up in our church? You know, do we want to just cater to the 30-second cuts? And if they're bored and they start fussing, do we just give in to them? Or, you know, I want to bring my friend, but you know, Pastor Eugene, I want you to know I'm going to bring my friend. And when, when I do bring my friend, I want you to tell a lot of jokes because I know you like telling jokes. And the answer is I do like telling jokes. I really do. Um, but I try to keep it to a minimum up here because I don't want this time to be a time where I just tell jokes. I'm, I'm very confident in my jokes because uh, people, people either really dislike them or really like them. And this is, that's the whole point of a joke, right? And so even, even my, my wife is like maybe just upset or something, I'll tell a joke and then she'll laugh. And then she'll immediately, her face will shut down and be like, not funny. I was like, you just laughed. And so these are things that, you know, that I like doing. However, when we are here, you know, what's the point? Like, what are, what are we here to do? And so even when I talk to, let's say, fellow pastors, they're like, oh, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing for a sermon series? What have you done recently? It's like recently, uh, we've been in Matthew, and so how long have you been in Matthew? So about a year and a half. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> so they just looked at me like, what? And so if you if you uh, you are here, and I can say this to you guys because if you are here, you are you can go beyond the thirty second cut thing because you're like, I can't wait for the next sermon series because it's going to be on wisdom. I just can't wait for six weeks of learning about wisdom, or the next sermon series is going to four weeks on holiness. I can't wait for that. And so we've kind of we've kind of just bypassed all that and said, you know what? Let's just take the nitty gritty of the Bible and let's study it. So by Barring a few months of time, it's about a year and a half of just Matthew. And I was thinking, if I had 50 years to preach, if God gives me this opportunity to preach for 50 years, at this rate, I still couldn't finish the Bible. Um, and better people have done longer sermon series, uh, on Matthew especially. We actually have about 3.5 months left. I did the calculations. We have about three and a half months left in Matthew. This is the Passion Week. This is one week's worth in the Bible. That's about eight chapters. And we have 3.5 months. Better people than me have preached on this Passion Week every Sunday for about six months. So I'm going to try to do my best um, to get it done. But 
I'm going to tell you, this is when it starts to get incredibly, incredibly exciting. Um, what the Passion Week is devoted, you can see even in Matthew, it's like a quarter of the book is written about just one week. Uh, if you look in the Gospel of John, it's literally half the book of John is on this final week. So this week is an incredible, incredible week for us to focus on, even if it's just a few months' time. So I hope that we recognize this, and as a church, we see that this is an incredible gift given to us. Our passage today starts with, Now they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, or Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus, we, Pastor Paul did this uh, last one where he heals the two blind men on the road to Jericho. So Jesus and his disciples come from Jericho, and they go to Bethpage on their way to Jerusalem. And this is a Roman military road that's about 17 miles long, but it's not the length. The road to Jericho to Jerusalem is about a 3,000-foot climb. So this is 17 miles long and going up 3,000 feet. It passes through a town called Bethany, okay? It passes through a town called Bethany, and it's nearby this place, place called Bethpage, which uh, literally means house of figs. These are all relevant and pertinent information, okay? I just don't want to repeat it twice, so I'm going to tell you up front. Mount Olives was next to it, and the peak of Mount Olives is 300 feet higher than the Temple Hill in Jerusalem. What this means is if you go up the, if you go mount, up the Mount of Olives and then you go to the top, you have the best view, the best panoramic view of Jerusalem. So that's why when you see all these panoramic posters and pictures of Jerusalem, if you've ever seen it, it's like, you know, this panoramic view and then there's, you know, there's that gold temple um, mosque thing right in the middle. And then you see this uh, Jerusalem panorama. That's from the Mount of Olives. And so this is all around the area of Jerusalem. Then everyone who goes, takes a trip to Israel, comes back at least with that panorama picture, including myself, because that's where you go up the Mount of Olives and you take that picture or you buy the poster. So this is where they're going. This is a journey. And this is uphill and, and Jesus is taking his disciples. And as they're going, we see that Jesus sends two of his disciples and he goes, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me. Matthew's the only gospel account that's mentioning this. Remember, all four gospel accounts mention this, but Matthew's the only gospel account that talks about two donkeys. Okay, Everywhere else, you just see a colt, but here we see two donkeys, a donkey and a colt with her. But he is telling the disciples exactly what the disciples are going to see. This whole scenario is famously known as Palm Sunday, although some scholars will say this is actually Palm Monday, but that would throw everyone off, so we just keep it as Palm Sunday. It's famously known as Palm Sunday. is where you would have come in and then maybe we would have gotten a branch. As a kid, do you guys remember the palm leaf branches? And then you just wave it around and then we would sing Hosanna songs, right? This time, the crowd is not manipulated into doing these things. No one's forcing them to sing or to shout, but we know Jesus is, what he is setting up, this 
in this instance is his entrance. It's the way he's going to enter, and it's on purpose. And if you look at the details, it's almost as if he is setting up a parable to symbolically show who he is. From the very beginning of this Passion Week, Jesus sets this up for his own self-disclosure. This is what that means. This self-disclosure is for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is what is brought back to the disciples after his resurrection. After his ascension, the disciples remembered all these things. It says that in John. They remembered all these things, but he, here this is all happening. And then this is what he says. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Kyrios or kudios. Kyrios means Lord. And the Lord needs them could have meant that the owner needs them. The owner of this animal needs them. But the answer is that's probably very unlikely because Jesus did not own the animals. And he wouldn't have sent his disciples to lie or cheat or to deceive someone. So the only real way to read Kyrios here is the Lord or Yahweh. And since he is the one that needs them, the most natural way to read this line is that Jesus is referring to himself as Yahweh. Yahweh is going to use this donkey and colt. So far, we've been going through Matthew. When's the last time you saw Jesus refer to himself as Lord? There is a clear mystery that is being lifted and a revelation of himself that is going to become more clarified. It's going to become more and more shown and it's even shown here in verse 3. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the full of a beast of burden. This quotation is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, with the beginning portion reminiscent of Isaiah 62, 11. But donkeys, when they would be ridden, they would be ridden into cities by who? They would be ridden into cities by priests or maybe a merchant or you know, an eminent citizen or something to that effect. Uh, people specifically outside the military when they're going in the city. Because if you are part of the military or if you're a king, you would enter the capital of a nation. You would enter the capital city riding on a chariot or a war horse. Kings on a donkey would be somewhat of a contradiction. But there would be a few times in the Bible that we see where a ruler would ride a donkey. And that would be during times of peace. Um, First Kings chapter 1, when Adinajah wanted to uh, usurp or, or at, least, at least take over as king, and Solomon was supposed to be king, David would have Solomon succeed him, and then he would put Solomon on his own mule or donkey, right? And then he would ride. And that's why how David used the mule to have Solomon ride to show the kingdom who their king was. But if you're really following along, along, excuse me, Jesus is not only proclaiming his lordship, 
but he is showing his messiahship, messiahship. Not only his messiahship, but in his fulfillment of scripture, he is showing that he means to bring peace, a peace that is not achieved by the world. By riding on a donkey, he is showing that he is not going to use political maneuvers. He is not going to use military maneuvers. In the very least, when you see this picture, you would have seen and known that this is not a traditional method of a king's coronation. What Jesus is doing is not the traditional method of how a king would go into the capital. And so we're going to go back to why two donkeys. Why two donkeys? Did Jesus actually ride two donkeys into Jerusalem? Did he straddle one and then the other? The answer is no, of course not. Um, one commentator said, of course not. The writer in Matthew is assuming that we as readers have common sense, which is, I hope so, because I've heard some people go, Jesus straddled two donkeys and went in. It's like, of course not. You can't straddle two animals at once. It's a ridiculous thing to imagine, unless he's surfing on one and, and like, on the other, just it's a ridiculous thing to imagine. But Matthew has this record, and only Matthew has this record of a donkey and her colt. Mark states that Jesus rode on a colt on which no one ever sat. Okay, so Matthew gives this further detail that because the colt was so young and had never been ridden before, Jesus uses the mother, the mother donkey, to lead the colt, perhaps even using her as a means not to let the colt get unstable because of the mass of the crowd that is ahead of them. But because the colt was still with its mother, meaning that the colt was not yet weaned off the mother, it's unmistakable that this colt would have never been ridden on before, thereby fulfilling specifically and clearly fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And this is incredible because the detail that Jesus puts in his commandments to his disciples, that the disciples remember later on is there is no mistake about it. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Would have came into the disciples' head. And in verse 6 it says, Jesus went and did as, uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So the disciples do as Jesus directs them, and they are successful. They put their cloaks on the donkeys and the colt, and Jesus uses it as a saddle of sorts as he rides the colt into Jerusalem. And here's where it says they spread their cloaks, most of the crowd. Most is a superlative. It's a mass of crowd. Most of the crowd, a mass of people, put their garments under the feet like a carpet for Jesus to walk on. This is a sign of submission. You are over me. You can walk on me. I am in submission to you. This is done to affirm someone's kingship. And they will cut off the branches from trees as well. And this would have been reminiscent of the Maccabean account where Simon Maccabeus goes into Jerusalem victorious and they will cut off palm branches and use it to celebrate. So all these things are done because we see that the people are ecstatic that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. 
And this is how ecstatic they were. In verse 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There is a surge, a massive crowd that surrounds Jesus. They were going before him. They were going after him. But where did this crowd come from? Why were they there? Like we said, there's a road from um, Jericho to Jerusalem, and that road cuts through a town called Bethany. And if you read in the account of John, Bethany is now known. There's no town named Bethany now, but if you go to where Bethany is, it's called El Azariah. Okay, that town is called El Azariah. And El Azariah means place of Lazarus place of Lazarus. If you go El Azariah and you just say it really quick, it sounds like Lazarus anyway. But people who saw the resurrection of Lazarus were continuing to tell people it was insane. Jesus resurrected someone three days already dead in Bethany. This is a mob of people that are following Jesus, that are surrounding him, and he's riding on this colt led by this donkey. And the, the mob isn't just like um, shouting some babble, but they're saying and shouting, literally the word is screaming, something very specific. And what is it that they are shouting? They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The verb were shouting is the imperfect tense, giving the sense that this is continually going on. As Jesus is riding the donkey from Bethpage and continually going, they're continually shouting this. This isn't some just chant. This isn't some song that they're singing. They're not singing the song Hosanna. They are shouting. They are really belting it out. And so the picture that you would see here isn't someone singing or a bunch of people singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're not singing it. It was, Hosanna. And this feverish pitch, this fervor was for this Messiah. That's the picture that you see here. The word Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew expression, which is a cry for help. It really literally means save now. Save now. People used it when they were in great distress. Uh, we see this in, in 2 Samuel, I think, in 2 Kings. When people were really in distress, they would go to the king and they would say, Hosanna, which meant, save me now, O king. And so people used it in times of great distress. And this in time had started to change. And in time it changed and it became a blessing. And even an acclamation, a shout of praise, which is the way we use it now. When we say Hosanna, we're not saying, save me now. We're using it as an acclamation, which is how it was used by the time we get to Jesus' day. Because they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These specific words come from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, it says, save us, we pray. Hosanna. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is the picture that we see here. And many people think this is what was shouted even when 
the Maccabean War ended and they were entering Jerusalem victorious. But the picture, the drawing of the picture doesn't stop here. In verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city was stirred. At the time of the Passover, there were millions of people there, potentially. Uh, people have speculated and calculated there are about 250,000 animal sacrifices during Passover because each family had to bring a lamb for Passover. They literally had to bring a lamb for Passover, and there was about 250,000 sacrifices done. And if you calculate at least 10 people per family that are traveling to this place, then you would have 2.5 million people going there on their pilgrimage to Passover. This is a ton of people. This is a ton of blood that's going to happen. But Jesus, at that very, very first day of Passover, Palm Monday or Sunday, whatever you want to call it, is going into um, Jerusalem. This is where you see the whole city was stirred up. Millions of people potentially are there. The whole city being stirred must have been caused by something quite significant. If it was just some rabble chanting outside, just a few hundred people, the whole city wouldn't have been disturbed or stirred. But this is a ton of people, and they are shouting. They are screaming. And here, um, the, the 2.5 million people, whoever it is, they, they, they're, they're, going, they're not going, oh, you guys seem to be excited about something. What's up? You know, who's Jesus is what you could technically possibly read this passage as. But the word for stirred is aceste. it means to be agitated. It's as if someone would stir up a hornet's nest. If you go, I stirred up a hornet's nest, that's the stir that's, your, that's being used here. The tone more is like, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And the answer from the crowd is even more interesting. The answer from the crowd when they are agitated and they, who is this guy causing this problem? The answer is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's not just Jesus of Nazareth, but there's an addition of Galilee. People will normally go, who is this person? Oh, it's the prophet Jesus of Nazareth, but there's of Galilee. Of Galilee, there is some pride because all these people are following Jesus from where his ministry and his healing power was. They are now seeing the culmination, the pinnacle of what Jesus is going to do because he's been talking about this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And they are so excited, but there is so much pride here. There is some pride here, right? Because Galilee is this backwater place. But guess what? That's where the Messiah is from, of Galilee. That's where I'm from. Jerusalem was the capital. And places outside weren't as high in social status as in Jerusalem. And people thought people, well, people back then thought that if you were from Galilee, you're a hick. You don't even speak properly. You have this thick accent. and like, mm, what you say? And so people would say that. And people even nowadays, I think every nation almost has something like this. But even in Korea, I heard that there is the capital Seoul. 
and then there's everything else. There's Seoul, and then there's the boonies. And I'm not sure exactly how true it is, but it's definitely true of New York City. I'm from Queens, and everything above the Bronx was considered to be upstate. That is a very, very arrogant view if you're a New Yorker. Everything above the Bronx is upstate. So when I was a kid, I saw a map of New York State, and I realized this is an incredibly arrogant view because New York City is like, bloop, and then there's this whole New York State, but this is New York, and everything here is upstate. And when I was working in, in a bank in Buffalo, they would try to call the New York City branch downstate. Like, oh, okay, are you guys going to go downstate? So all the emails are like, oh, Eugene's going to go downstate to work on this branch here. And I just thought that sounded dumb. I was like, that's dumb. I'm just going to New York City, guys. And so that's when I came to Manhattan. But when Jesus came into Jerusalem, they were ready to hail and receive him as the Messiah if he did for them what they wanted. If he did for them what they wanted. The Jews only saw Jesus as the political Messiah, meaning he was there now to overturn Roman rule over them. And we'll see that is exactly what Jesus doesn't do. In fact, he flips tables in the temple. He tells them to pay taxes to Caesar. And he foretells the destruction of the temple. And when Jesus doesn't do what they want them to do, what they want him to do, they'll turn on him. You know, what do churches today preach and teach? You'll turn on your TV, you'll listen to your podcast, and you may hear a preacher tell you that if you follow Jesus, he'll make you rich He'll heal you. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And your emotions will start to go get on a high. Your heart will swell. And you'll start singing praises louder. And you'll start shouting the praises. Hosanna! And it'll continue to do, it'll continue to happen until he doesn't do it for you. Then it'll stop. Not only will it stop, I'm telling you, you'll turn on him. And this is what the fallen sinner will do. There is a misunderstanding. There is a grievous lie that's being told to us. And that's if you follow Jesus, he will heal and make everything right now okay in the terms that you dictate to him. And I see that online. I saw that two weeks ago. Someone here shared a picture of a very tragic and very, very, uh, just a desperate situation where a young child died. And they said, you know, it's God's will to resurrect this little baby. So we are now in the position of dictating to God what his will is. We are now in the position to say, God, you are not sovereign over life and death, but I get to tell you what you get to do because I know what your will is. And when God doesn't do that for you, What's going to happen? You may be familiar with this because it's all over social media, but it's been two weeks. What has happened? They're gonna, they're, are, are you gonna, just gonna put blankets over and act like it never happened? If, if Jesus doesn't do 
what sinners want him to do, sinners will turn on him. What a true believer wants then is different. And it was even shared this morning, when you go into a poorer nation or a place that's suffering, you're like, God, the reaction is, God, how can this be? How can this be? And yet, what was the testimony? When you look at the poverty of a place, you go, God, how can this be? But when you look at their individual lives and see what God is doing, there is a richness there that cannot be given by the things of the world. And yet, what do we see? We see God's blessing as comfort. If you're uncomfortable, if you're not entertained, if you aren't given exactly what you want, when you want it, it must not be God's will that's being done. It must be something else. And so the sinful heart can be attracted to Jesus, can be very attracted to Jesus, and they can be very religious until Jesus attacks your false religion. And he'll say, you are not God. The word of God is clear. When you hear it and study it rightly, you will see that you either worship God for yourself or you worship God for him. There are those that are legitimately in pain and need help. And when you turn to the Lord, he is the one that will save you. He is the one that will save you, but it will be at his perfect timing and it will be glorious. Do you remember the parable in Luke of the rich man and the beggar, Lazarus? Did he ever get anything in this world, ever? He longed for crumbs falling off a table, and yet he is now glorified with his maker in heaven. And all that stuff is in the past. All that stuff he doesn't look back on. He is glorified with Abraham, and this is the parable Jesus shares and tells his disciples. It will be in his perfect timing, and it will be glorious. And if you don't get it right now, if you don't get what you think you need or what you think you want right now, perhaps, perhaps, it's discipline. And discipline is for our own good. And discipline could be so that we, as it says in the Bible, will share in his holiness. If you don't get something right now, perhaps it's because you need to suffer. But what suffering brings and reveals out of us are idols. Our hearts are idol factories, John Calvin would say. And suffering would bring these out. It's like, oh, you know what I really did enjoy? I really, really enjoy suffering and, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, comfort. And when I get a little bit of suffering, I'm like, whoa, I really, really thought I deserved comfort. After a hard day's work, I deserve that beer. And when I don't get it, my whole mood is messed up. I deserve this blankety blank. And if I don't get it, my spirit is just oh, in pain and in anguish. 
But whether it's discipline, whether it's suffering, whether it's God revealing his perfect timing to you, in the end, the Bible tells us that in the end, we will count it all joy. That's the promise that we're given. In the end, we will count it all joy. Save now cannot be our rally cry as if we get to dictate to God that he is now obligated to you. Faith isn't power over God. It's not power to make God move. That's a lie. That's not what faith is. And if you've been taught that, if you've been hearing that, tell people that is not what faith is. Faith isn't power to move God. It's not power over God. Faith is trust in God. I trust God. It's leaning into him more and more. And if there's pain, if there's toil, if there's struggle, you lean to him even more. That's what faith is. But the question you will have to ask is this. Are you serving God for yourself? Or are you serving God for him? Because when you don't get what you want, where does your heart go? When you don't get what you want, where does your heart go? Does it go, number one, further away from him? Or number two, deeper into him? When you don't get what you want, does your heart go further or does it go deeper? Because you are either here to lift up his name or to lift up your name. It's either you're living for his glory or for your comfort. Do you want to know how to wisely end 2019? Pray that you receive the true gift of faith so that you really know what true salvation is and you know what it means that God has saved your soul. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he comes into Jerusalem. There are shouts. There's acclamation. Here he is. He's going to make everything better. But how does Jesus handle it? Imagine there are potentially hundreds of thousands of people shouting this. How does Jesus handle it? He rides on in, in on a colt. He comes as the humble king. He comes as the suffering servant. And he bought for us salvation so that we could be like him. Perfect in submission and a true and lasting joy that cannot be and will not be defiled by the world. That is what we've been given. You know what faith is? Faith is leaning into him now, knowing that in the past, the promises are sure because your future is secure in him. That's what faith is. And faith that God wants you to have and wants us to end the year with is to know that this is a true and lasting joy that cannot be touched by the world that Jesus is going to give you. You want to know how to wisely end the year? Then know that you are called to be people of true faith, to the true God, our true and only Savior, Jesus Christ. 
and it's to him we give the glory. Let's pray.